News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. Hey, I'm in New York. I know you live here, so I wanted to let you know I'm here and that I'd love to see you. What's your schedule looking like? Oh, goodness, no. I'm not free then. Only from 4 a.m. to 5 a.m. tomorrow. I'd love to see you. How long have I known about the trip? About three years. See, I made a plan exactly three years ago that I'd visit New York so I could get affordable tickets. It also helps making a hotel reservation that far in advance. You know how expensive it can get here. I was going to tell you earlier, but instead of doing that, I just didn't do that. I'd love to see you. Oh, can you come to me? My hotel is on the water. You only need to transfer one more boat after the Staten Island Ferry. It's a small, creaky sloop helmed by a sailor who will tell you haunted tales about the hotel and also engage you at length about Bitcoin. His name is Bartholomew. Tell him I say hi. I'd like to come to you, but things are so crazy, you know? Yeah, it's been a hectic few weeks that I've been here. I went to MoMA. Have you been? We should go sometime. Maybe the next time I'm here. But for now, it'll have to be the hotel. I'd really love to see you. You live in Bushwick? I wish I knew that when I was there on a mural tour yesterday for five hours, we could have hung out. Both our faults, I guess. You didn't meet me, and I didn't tell you I was in New York and also walking distance from your house. Ah, well, let's not dwell in the past. The important thing is that there's still an opportunity for us to see each other. If you don't come meet me at my hotel between the hours of 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. tomorrow morning, I'll understand that our friendship means nothing to you. What kind of friend doesn't visit their friend when they're in New York? Would you love to see me? Would you? Would you? Prove it, motherfucker. Take the creaky sloop at dawn. We can totally catch up. I have a lot to tell you about my life while asking no questions about yours. I'd love to see you. It's FAQ NYC. You just heard a cartoon read out loud by Will Feinstein, written by Jason Katzenstein, the editor of Arai, the awesome new comics website that's part of The Brick House, thebrick.house online. This new collection of uh, journalists and artists uh, all working together that you should check out, thebrick.house. Meantime, Past uh, obnoxious friends visiting, which I think at this point in the pandemic, a lot of us are actually sentimental for. It's been another busy, interesting week in the city. We're recording on Wednesday at about two in the afternoon. So right before the uh, snowstorm, we'll see what things look like on the other end. Alex, hello in Manhattan. Do you want to fill us in on what's been happening? And of course, uh, your sad personal news. So before I go into what is going on in the city, I'm just going to let you guys know I am currently feeling some bereavement. My 1987 beautiful Cadillac Coupe de Ville d'Elegance um, four-door with wall sconces that lit a plush, gorgeous maroon interior has met its last day. Basically... I bought this car. My friend uh, David Cohen, who does movie picture cars, helped me buy a car I wanted for the summer. I bought it for like $700 and I wanted to tool around, like go to the beach and hang out with my friends uh, the summer after I got a divorce. And uh, it lasted way longer than six months. Um, but 
at the end of the day, the repairs for it, it kept overheating. There's a bunch of technical jargon I could go into, but at the end of the day, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze and uh, the amount of money that the repairs were going to be, I could probably buy like a better, more long lasting vintage Cadillac if that's what I want to do. Um, so today we retired it. They let me keep the hood ornament and uh, they're taking her to the scrapyard. You can see pictures on our website. Now that you are married again, do you see uh, do you see a need to get a new vintage Cadillac, or is that uh, is that ship sailed at uh, three miles to the gallon? No, I probably don't need to uh, get a new car because I actually won my new husband with the like I lured him in with my awesome Cadillac, and we took a an amazing drive to City Island where he smoked cigars and was very impressed with my vintage '80s Cadillac, where I felt like you know Gloria from the movie Gloria. Um, so the news: storm is coming, the snow is falling, and there's been little to no clarity around outdoor structures, snow, snow plows. Or outdoor dining, which is just kind of punishing for these restaurant owners. Already indoor dining got taken away. Now the snowstorm comes a couple days after that. They're like, all of a sudden your outdoor structures have to come in. The mayor said, we're telling restaurant owners it's important if they can get any of their equipment out of the roadway. It's really important to do that. Particularly heaters, get them in, but sidewalk dining is still allowed. Now, if you guys have been around the city, you know that a lot of these Outdoor dining huts or structures have lights in them, have uh, heaters and electrical cords built into them, and they're in the road. You know, they gave up parking spots for this. There seemed to have been a plan, but I was terribly unaware of a plan. I think, Harry, you spoke to that a little bit. Ed Grayson from the Department of Sanitation said that they've been working with businesses since the summer, although that's news to me and I think a lot of small businesses. All the restaurateurs I've talked to, there is some plan here, but it doesn't really stack up with what people have had. But it's really different in different parts of the city. Like in Manhattan, you have outside structures that are like mini buildings almost, right? And they've got electricity and heaters built in. You have to disassemble those and then pay carpenters to reassemble them, put, put the heat back, electricians to set these back up. Other places really are just sort of like huts that are sort of outside and maybe have like, you know, some sort of little ventilation system going in my part of Brooklyn, at least. Chrissy, what have you been seeing? Uh, how's the outdoor dining situation in Crown Heights? <laughs> Listen, I think that all of these buildings are not suitable for uh, outdoor dining. I mean, they are essentially, you have built an entire building structure just outside with a door, maybe a window or two, but you can see those that I've seen, you can see possibly 10 tables in there. But there's no circular airflow. It's usually a door and one, maybe two windows. So I don't see how this is a safe way to to eat <laughs> because you're not even socially distanced properly when you're in these little huts. Like as I've walked past, I've seen people huddled in. Uh, they don't have um, the heat lamps just yet. So I guess you would just keep your coats on and essentially just be in a small shack outside of the restaurant where the the waiter or waitress just brings you your food from indoors. It does not seem like a, a feasible I've seen solution. some good ones up and down Bleecker Street uh, where it seems like they have good airflow. They like slat the back and they even have fans inside. So while customers aren't in there, there's something. But again, all of this takes electrics. Then, of course, you see these little plastic huts. How are they cleaning the air? Are they waiting an appropriate amount of time for people to uh, have airflow come in and out? 
who can say? This um, is all happening as uh, Governor Cuomo just uh, put the kibosh on inside dining again, starting on Monday, which every restaurateur I've talked to says is has them now financially and otherwise completely fucked. And this is happening as Cuomo himself acknowledges that restaurants haven't been a significant source based on the state's own numbers of contagion. But he says it's one of the handful of things he can control. I get that, but it means, you know, if you're opening a restaurant and you followed all these rules and regulations and you spent tens of thousands of dollars to stay open, to keep employing people and so on, like the carpet just keeps getting pulled out from under you with shifting shifting rules and regulations and just no sense of when certainty is coming. I mean, it seems punishing and it seems really hard and everybody and their mother wants to lament the loss of these businesses but so far there is no legislation around any kind of like financial relief for small businesses that were struggling i know that de blasio put in place some kind of program for you know city storefronts mom and pop shops but that amounts to little more than like uh, like some legal help with negotiating with your landlord and it's just it's not enough there is one other news item i really want to get to someone drove through a small group of black lives matter protesters they were black lives matter protesters they had signs but they were actually protesting ice the driver is kathleen casillo i hope i'm pronouncing that right she's uh 52 years old. She's from Queens. There's videos all over the place of her speeding into a group of people. She injured six people and she received for driving her car in Times Square through a bunch of people. She received a desk appearance in Times Square or in Queens. Uh, no, not in Queens in um, in Midtown Manhattan. She's from Queens. So she's from Queens, but in Midtown Manhattan, BLM is having this protest, protesting ICE. She speeds through, hurts six people, and here's what she gets. A desk appearance um, and release on ROR, release on her own reconnaissance. She claims that she, quote unquote, panicked, according to New York Daily News, when protesters slapped her windows. So this is kind of... I think messed up that more attention hasn't been paid to this, nor a trend of uh, increasing trend of anti-protesters or like deranged people driving into protesters using their car as like a counter protest measure. It's really messed up. I've written about this at a couple of earlier points. I actually have concerns with the city allowing people to take streets for protests that say the administration is in more sympathy with, and this would start with with uh, Black Lives Matter and policing protests with this administration, however sincerely or otherwise, that that you're setting up uh, uh, circumstances that 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 seem like they can be built to spiral out of control. I'd also note that we've now seen a ton of these vehicular attacks, generally targeting reformist leftist protesters from others. Um, going back over several years. Previously, this was something that, that, that had gotten a lot of traction in Israel with car attacks. But suddenly, th- this has come here, and it's something that the right has picked up on. And it's it's just a really distressing trend. Add to that, the NYPD not seeming to take this very seriously, which it's a bunch of things. They don't seem to like these protesters very much, as has been well established at this point. And they also seem generally very disinterested in car accidents, including things that maybe are in accidents or pretty clearly are in accidents, if they can get around them. 
Like this maybe isn't what they're built for, or maybe it's ideological, but it's uh, it's worrisome to see it happening here and, and the consequences be so minimal. This, of course, happens after the Staten Island bar guy, you know, drove off with a uh, sheriff on the hood of his car, as previously discussed here, and, you know, also was released without bond thereafter. I'm just going to say one thing. I mean, I disagree with you on protests as far as them taking over streets, but I do think it's like a weird allowance and a dance that the city allows the cops and protesters to do. And I don't know if it's like entirely genuine all the time, but allowing like releasing these people on their own, this would not happen to any, this would not happen to a protester. This would not happen to any person of color to be ROR'd on this. I mean, it just seems, and it's not just the cops, right? You got to, you got to also say, you know, what's going on with these prosecutors, right? Well, the NYPD's whole line about this is, oh, you have a problem with that? Blame the justice reformers, you know, and that, that's, that's its own sort of load of bullshit with certain things like this, where clearly they could hold someone, clearly they could charge more aggressively and they're making the decision not to, and then saying we would have loved to have, but like the hippies won't let us. Right. Bail reform. Mm-hmm. Which is Commissioner Shea's answer to everything bad that's happening in the city, even as he lacks really any statistics to back that up. Professor Greer, I have a question for you from someone I've seen online this week. Are you voting for uh, Max Rose or Andrew Yang? <laughs> I'd sooner eat glass than vote for either. I voted in every single election I could since I turned 18. That goes for runoffs. That goes for... Um, Early voting, that goes for primaries. You know how I feel about Andrew Yang and the Yang gang and their nonsense, to put it politely. Um, So no, no, Andrew Yang's a non-starter for me. And it's not that he's not from New York City. As I've said in several publications, it's because he traffics in old-fashioned racist tropes that are damaging to black and brown people. And I cannot imagine having someone like him in charge of housing policy or God forbid, education, where he uses things like, I'm Asian, so I'm good at math. What the hell does that mean in 2020? I teach statistics. I'm black. I'm good at math. So the idea that he would even be in charge of anything that has to do with people of color frightens me to no end. And this idea of like, one of two things is happening. Either he knows what he's doing and he's fine in trafficking these like racist old white man tropes, or he doesn't know what he's doing and he's still doing it which is incredibly dangerous either way. So he's a non-starter. Why are all the Bloomberg people lining up behind him, starting with uh, Bradley Tusk, given given that? I think it's the same reason why they're lining up behind Ray McGuire. You get to have like a super rich white man agenda, but a person of color doing it for you. So it doesn't seem as bad initially. Am I crazy or did I read that Patrick Ewing endorsed Ray McGuire? You are not crazy. No, that's probably true. Like... That's, like what is they're trying to what you know why because black capitalism is real <laughs> no they're, they're for, and his son is going stepson, to stepson his stepson yeah. stepson his stepson is you know going to the nba so like they know each other i mean listen black people know each other that's one so rich black people all know each other all <laughs> that's two yeah i'm pretty much listen if there are 500 black people in the world i know like 498 okay <laughs> and then as far as max rose who plays footsie with you know trumpists and white nationalists i'm not interested in that either so, like, I'm not sure. I think he does have a lane, to be quite honest, because I think that there are a lot of, quote, unquote, good liberal Democrats who sneaky appreciate Trump's messaging. They just don't like the messenger. So, I mean, there, I think there is a path for Max Rose somewhere, but I just I don't like 
I don't like his conservative leanings. Um, and I think that, you know, he's disingenuous and, and, you know, I'm not a huge fan of some of de Blasio's behaviors, but I just don't, I don't appreciate his sort of single-mindedness when it comes to the mayor. And also, you just lost your job. So, like, now you want to run for mayor? How are you trying, like, this is where racial and gender politics really just drives me insane. It's like, oh, so you get to fail up. Like, you lose your job, and now it's like, oh, I'll run for mayor. And actually be considered legitimate. How is that even possible? I mean, it's like I'm throwing him in the Pete Buttigieg category. Like, it's just, it's so infuriating as a woman, as a Black person, as a Black woman, to consistently see quasi-mediocre men consistently, and I'll I'll be more specific, quasi-mediocre white men consistently fail up while we have to sit by and just assume that they know what they're talking about, and they absolutely don't. Your two years in D.C. does not give me any inkling as to what your managerial style will be in New York City. And the fact that just, what, three months ago, two months ago, one month ago, you were saying, I really want to represent Staten Island and parts of Brooklyn in Washington, D.C., and now you want to be in all five boroughs. Get out of here. So let me ask you, why why is it that all these characters who are more conservative in certain ways are running in a crowded Democratic primary rather than thinking about outside campaigns. This is interesting to me. Like there's nobody serious, all due respect to the Cats man and Curtis Sliwa, who's looking to run outside of the Democratic primary. Right. Well, I mean, I think, one, we have a closed primary system. So, you know, I think a lot of people want to sort of get in on that system. I think some people just don't have the creative imagination. But like, let's be clear, we had 20 years of Republican mayor. So it's not like New York's adverse to to doing that. There are lots of Democrats in the city who will vote for Republicans. There are lots of Democrats in the city. We have a lot of shades of blue where they have, you know, sort of moderate leanings. Like, I think there's this assumption that, you know, New York City is this liberal bastion. But like, as I've said before many times on this podcast, half of Brooklyn, most of Staten Island, a large portion of Queens, a section of the Bronx, and the east side of Manhattan are all places where I would not go during the daytime or feel comfortable going at any point in time in my life. So we're not this like oasis of blue in the United States that a lot of people think that we are. And yet we would get way more federal funding if it wasn't for our disgraceful sanctuary city policies. It's just (laughs) such lazy analysis by some of these people. But I think, you know, this clown car of, you know, everyone who wants to run for one of the most important positions, I would argue, in the country is just the audacity of some of these people who just wake up one morning and I don't know who told them that they had qualifications. Um, It's just like, just because you're interested in it doesn't make it a good idea. And I think, sadly, because we have this truncated election season, folks are just like still talking on the surface. I don't care if you want to fire Shay. Who do you want to hire? What is your idea of policing? I don't care that you think homelessness is terrible. What do you plan to do about the Lucerne? What do you plan about... Rikers, you know, like all these things that will have adverse effects. Like, do you know what Troop 6000 is? Have you read Nikita Stewart's book? Like, these are questions that I want to know so we can get past this kind of, you know, fourth grade, I'm running for class president analysis that we currently have and actually think about what's good for the city of New York. So joining us right now, as we're recording this, (laughs) we've got Susan Lerner from Common Cause New York and Sean Duggar. Of uh, was the education director for uh, Rank the Vote NYC. Thank you both for uh, for joining us. Um, Hi, Sean. Hi, Susan. Welcome to FAQ NYC. Thank you for having us to talk about our favorite topic. (laughs) 
Um, so, Sean, I want to start with you with this question. So can you do two things for me? One, walk our listeners through just really quickly, what is ranked choice voting? Uh, because it's going to be something new for our voters in June. But then also, why the kerfuffle? Why do we have uh, members of the city council and sort of Black and Latinx leaders uh, across the city, certain Black and Latinx leaders across the city, saying that ranked choice voting is harmful for candidates of color and it's the opposite of the intended result, where we will actually get fewer uh, candidates of color uh, represented in electoral position. Sure. So ranked choice voting is going to be utilized starting uh, with the upcoming special election in City Council District 24. It's a process in which you're able to vote for up to five candidates and rank them in your order of preference from one to five. One being the candidate that you like the most. Usually that's the candidate that you'll volunteer for, um, that you'll donate to. Um, you know, your second choice is the one who you, you still like, who's there on most of the issues, but may not be the most charismatic or the one that really gets you fired up. And then the same going down the list so with the third, fourth, and your fifth choice is the one that, you know, you may not agree with them on everything, but they're better than the other choices. And so it's really a process that gives voters the chance to have their ballot and their voice count throughout the entire process. Um, you know, we've seen in New York City Council members be elected with as little as 20% of the vote because of the plurality system. Um, that means 80% of voters in the district voted for someone else and did not have their voice heard in the final process. So we're really looking forward to it. Uh, it's been implemented in places like San Francisco and Oakland. New Mexico and Minnesota and Maine, as well as used by entire countries like India for their presidential race. It's a tried and true process. In fact, New York used to have it uh, back in the 90s with the election of their community school boards. And there you saw more people of color win. Um, you saw more of a community voice in, on those school boards. And we're looking forward to that being brought back to New York. So I have a quick question, Sean, for our listeners, uh, before I, we get to some of the racial implications. What if, you know, of the 7,000 people who are running for mayor of New York, <laughs> and you said we can rank five, what if I'm looking at my ballot, and, you know, I'm obviously being hyperbolic, but of, say, the, the 12 Democrats that will likely shake out by June, what if I only like three? Do I, can I just sort of rank just three, or if I only like my one candidate and I just want to vote for my one candidate, how does that work uh, at the ballot box? You can do either. Um, so you can vote for up to five. That means you could vote for one candidate, although voting for one candidate doesn't necessarily mean that your preference will be uh, included in the final results, but having that one vote is fine. You can rank three, you can rank four. It's totally up to you. And so we've, we've heard some debate, and Susan, feel free to jump in as well. Uh, we've heard some debate about uh, the racial implications of ranked choice voting. And certain legislators and uh, elected officials have said, you know, this uh, method of electing 
representatives and possibly the mayor is racist and it's retrograde and it will damage Black and Latinx candidates in the long run. And so what do you all say to that argument? Well, there are 70 plus candidates, mostly candidates of color, who today released a statement opposing the lawsuit and pointing out that what's needed is education. And that's where the plaintiffs for this lawsuit should be focusing their efforts, not trying to stop RCV, but actually improving voter education. Six of the plaintiffs are city council members. They actually have the ability to pass educational standards and requirements for city agencies to provide money to educate the voters. Uh, and yet that hasn't happened yet. Here's what I don't understand. This seems like such an interesting and appealing experiment to me. And the way it's working is it's in special elections and it's in primaries, but it's not in general elections. And I'm hoping that one of you can explain the logic or the mechanics of that. Absolutely. The reason the Charter Revision Commission chose to place a amendment to our charter that would bring RCV for special and primary elections is because fusion voting as it's used in New York and in New York City means that candidates appear on the ballot more than once. And the thinking was that that is... In the general election, you mean? In the general election, right? And that it would be challenging to convince voters not to vote for the same candidate on different lines using up their choices. So the decision was made, let's start with special and primary elections where the vote, the candidates only appear once on the ballot. Let's familiarize the voters with it, which we think they will embrace ranked choice voting. And then if it's as popular as we believe it will be, then the city can consider using it for the general election, where familiarity with ranked choice voting means people are less likely to use the multiple appearances of fusion candidates as a way to rank the same candidate over and over. So that was the logic. And how confident are you that the uh, Board of Elections in New York is going to be able to competently administer this system, given uh, the many issues they've had over the years? So I'm actually pretty confident about it. We've been in very regular touch with the Board of Elections about their preparations. We have talked to them about bringing in national experts on ranked choice voting. These tabulation software that they are uh, looking at using is software that's been developed by the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center that specializes in ranked choice voting. And as part of that package would be training and assisting the Board of Elections to prepare for ranked choice voting. There are actually three things that the board needs in order to run a ranked choice voting election from a technical standpoint. One, it needs a ranked choice voting ballot. They've had a version of a ranked choice voting ballot in hand since February, and they've redesigned it. Two, the scanners, the machines that actually read the ballot, have to be able to read the ranked choice voting ballot and record the ranked votes accurately. We have machines that do that. We already own them. 
They do not, unlike our uh, information last year, we were wrong. The machines do not need any change in order to read the ranked choice voting ballot. And then you need a way to count the rankings. And the board has a request for proposals out. And as I said, the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center has submitted a bid, and we believe that the board will use uh, their software and have the benefit of their expertise. So in all honesty, compared to the changes that the board had to adopt over a six-week period around the absentee balloting in our primaries, this is much simpler. So I've got a a PR question for you all, because, I mean, Susan, as you know, the Board of Election has done, I mean, the scale of the work that they do is is unlike any other place in the country. But the PR is that they're ineffective, that, you know, if, if they can fail, they will, they'll do it anyway in every way. And the confidence level that a lot of voters have in the New York City Board of Elections is at an all-time low in many ways, right? Especially in certain parts of the city. So how can they reassure voters that they have this under control, it'll be legitimate, and um, they can do this work, right? That we haven't seen since Sean pointed out in quite quite a few decades, even though we used to have it. But also, I think the second piece is, will they be doing any sort of PSAs or public service announcements to help people understand what this is, right? Because you and I have been talking about ranked choice voting for many years. <laughs> um, you know, I think certain people have thought about this and we've debated it and we've argued it. But for others, this is a brand new concept and it's not highly complicated. It's just something that needs to be explained to them, possibly more than once. So is the Board of Elections, one, going to do anything for their PR problem so people actually feel confident that they can do this work? And two, are they going to be on the the PSA side to explain to New Yorkers what it is, what it really is. So let me talk about the PR problem first, um, which is frustrating because actually, uh, you know, when I look at the changes that they made, when I look at the extraordinary improvement in the absentee ballot process um, between the June primary and the November primary, the amount of information that was provided to voters about how to get their absentee, ability to get it online, how to fill it out, just a huge improvement in the amount of information provided to voters by the Board of Elections. And they really haven't gotten the credit for a really a lot of voter education that they put out. I don't know if you've seen the most the designs that they used in 2020. But, you know, we all got a booklet from them that was actually attractive and full of relevant information that you could actually read and understand, which is one of the reasons why I think we saw a huge increase in the number of people who were voting early and the number of people who were voting absentee. It's because the board provided them with the information they needed to know that they had a choice of how to vote. And voters took advantage of that choice. So I think the same degree of information is going to be available, not just from the Board of Elections, but also from the Campaign Finance Board uh, that is in the process of finalizing their education campaign 
in multiple languages. So I do think that one, they're able to do it technically because it is simpler than what they did for the absentee. And two, I think that the voters are going to be receiving a reasonable and decent amount of clear information. And third, in terms of can they run this, by the time we get to June, the Board of Elections will have run ranked choice voting elections in four city council districts. They will have demonstrated that they actually are able to do it. And I think that once we get past the February specials and it's actually used successfully, a lot of the skepticism is uh, going to be diminished. I got a few questions here. What do we make of the timing of what I'm going to call Eric Adams' lawsuit, in which you have a bunch of council members and others who are often aligned with or in sympathy with his campaign, and he's objected to this system? But this is coming not right after voters had broadly approved of this new system, but you know, in the middle of a crowded race, and as people are working out the dynamics there. Well, um, you know, I never speculate on motives. Uh, but I can say that in terms of uh, timeliness, it does seem awfully late. What does this say about the uh, relative strength or weakness of the Democratic Party? It's sort of fascinating to me to see everyone running as Democrats, which is going to be my next question. <laughs> and at the same time, the party seeming to have no ability to perform any sort of uh, culling or limiting function in terms of the uh, – of the field. And this is also with city council races. As Chrissy said, there's roughly 7,000 people running for each open position. <laughs> but that's why we need ranked choice voting, Harry. I mean, we did an analysis that showed that, you know, I think choices for the voter is a really positive thing. And it's the conjunction of our very robust public financing system and term limits that create regular open seats and that enable community-backed candidates to actually run a credible campaign and to give the voters of New York City a lot of choices. And ranked choice voting helps voters make sense of those choices. And Sean can talk about how it eliminates the spoiler problem, right? Where communities uh, that have two or three different uh, candidates from their communities, often what we see is that the political party or others are leaning on some of those candidates not to run because it's going to split the vote. And then a candidate not backed by the party, not, not backed by the community, not representative of the community, wins even though they have a small sliver of the district backing them. So ranked choice voting is really designed to deal with what you're talking about. In terms of the party having a heavy hand to decide who should run and who should win, well, ranked choice voting doesn't give them that power. It puts the power in the hands of the voters. I've got just one more double-barreled question. And Sean, also, please jump in here at any point. Uh, barrel one, Eric Adams and Ray McGuire, who are Everyone can count in their own ways, but let's say two of the three leading black candidates in this crowded field have both indicated opposition to or concerns with ranked choice voting, which I think is where Chrissy started with with how this should or should not be properly understood. 
barrel two, I count at least four candidates or proto-candidates in this race who you could see running outside of a Democratic primary. Um, let's say Ray McGuire, Max Rose, Andrew Yang, and Laurie Sutton. Again, other people have their own lists. But how does ranked choice voting play into that math, if at all, about whether or not to run in this crowded primary field versus running in a general? And I won't ask you to editorialize, but from my perspective, the people we know who may be running as a Republican are, are ridiculous. And given how crowded the Democratic field is, it's remarkable to me that nobody is taking up that, that market opportunity, well, even I if mean, it's a that, long shot. That may have to do with the strength and attractiveness of the brand under our current circumstances. That's all I would say. But I would defer to Sean, who has had firsthand experience helping candidates in the Bay Area make decisions in ranked choice voting campaigns to answer your first barrel. I would say, you know, there are multiple strategies that you can use, you know. People often look at ranked choice voting and think that means candidates have to team up. But there's also what we call the front runner strategy, where you can just simply ask for second and third choice votes from voters. So you have your base, you're, if you're leading, and then you're just collecting second and third place votes from candidates who may not make it. Um, that's how Lyndon Breed was elected mayor of San Francisco. She didn't team up with anyone. She just simply asked for second and third choice votes. So there is a path to victory for front runners who don't want to necessarily team up. But there are also opportunities for candidates who may not be front runners at first. And the ability to partner with other candidates and say, hey, you know what? I like this person. They're my number two. And I hope you'll make me your number two. So there are ways to do it in ways, you know, we saw Gene Kwan in Oakland win the mayorship that way. We saw Jesse Aragon in Berkeley become the youngest mayor in the, in the state of California. And he got elected through that process as well. So has anyone done any extensive research though about the scale? Um, and seeing how ranked choice voting works in, say, a large city like New York, as opposed to a place like Berkeley or Oakland, or I think Minneapolis has used it, you know, with such a large number of people of color, but also such a large number of candidates of color? Well, I mean, we've had San Francisco. San Francisco has been using RCV for 16 years now. And Although it's not the same demographic, San Francisco is 67% people of color, and the majority of the candidates and the majority of elected officials are people of color. So San Francisco is roughly about a third of the size, I want to say, a third or a fourth of the size of New York. So we've seen it implemented successfully there for a number of years. Susan can probably talk more about this, but we know that the Board of Elections and others have been in contact with San Francisco um, so that they can, they've been able to see their best practices. Um, and we've also been in contact with San Francisco election officials and advocates and community organizations collecting their best practices for education and then also for candidates, um, all the tools and tricks and resources that they have available. And Susan, what are what are some of the the organizations, uh, community organizations in New York uh, that are sort of helping to get the word out? Yeah, 
about ranked choice voting? You know, there are a lot of organizations that we've been working with. We have been training candidates and organizations about ranked choice voting all the way through since March. Trained hundreds of candidates, campaign staff, uh, and members of organizations that we knew were thinking ahead to next year and wouldn't get confused with the general election intervening. So the groups that are, uh, you know, have been supporters and are, are gathering material with us to be able to train their communities, include the Center for Law and Social Justice, the New York Immigration Coalition, uh, New York Communities for Change, Northwest Bronx uh, Community and Clergy Coalition, uh, Mink Wan uh, Community Action Center, uh, Chaya uh, the CDC, um, the Educational Alliance, United Neighborhood Houses. Um, those are just some of the groups uh, that have uh, been uh, in active discussions with us about how to uh, be sure that voters are aware of ranked choice voting and use it to their benefit. So San Francisco is like a tenth of the population in New York, but I know that they're using ranked choice all around the Bay Area. Correct. So, you know, if we had, if New York were the first city to use ranked choice voting, the conversation would, we would be having would be, how can you start in New York City when it's so large. Instead, what we have is a situation where we have smaller cities that have developed the best practices and now we're able to take it and scale it up. You know, I think India actually is a lot larger than New York City. Uh, and they <laughs> I'm not use... sure, Susan. Let's double check. <laughs> <laughs> and they use ranked choice voting to elect their president. That. That to me is a terrific last word here. Um, Susan and Sean, thank you guys both so much for joining us. Do you have anything else you want to add just to put into people's heads as they're, they're thinking about what's, what's coming, what hopefully will be a slightly saner year? Well, you know, I think people need to know, uh, to remember all of the occasions when they rank naturally in their daily lives. And we're just asking them to take something that they use every day and use it in a context where they haven't thought of it to give their vote more power and to give them more choices. I'd add that, you know, we're launching our full education campaign starting in the new year. I'd encourage people to check out our website, rankthevotenyc.org um, and follow us on social media. We have this new exciting online platform that we're gonna be launching where folks We'll be able to do mock RCV elections um, so they can get used to ranking and filling out a ballot and going through the tabulation process. All of that fun stuff. Sean, can you give us that website one more time, please? Sure. It's rankthevotenyc.org. Thank you both so much again. Um, let's talk more once we get through this, uh, this first special and see how things are going. I hope you'll both come back and join us. Yeah. Anytime. Definitely. That'll be great. Thank you. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. A special thank you to Jason Adam Kazenstein and Sarah Hopkins of Arai for their excellent comic as read by 
Will Feinstein at the beginning of this episode, and to our guests this week, Susan Lerner of Common Cause, New York, and Sean Duggar, the Education Director for Rank the Vote, NYC. We are headquartered, as ever, at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, and recorded again this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be good, and we'll see you all next week. Bye.